Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When anyone gathers to accomplish a task, there are plenty of people who express a willingness to help and no shortage of expert opinions about the work itself and how it should be completed. Great! With all this amazing expertise and positive thinking, there should be no trouble completing the task, right? Guess again. One way to solve this problem is to pay people and hold them accountable if they do not deliver. This is the most effective way. Another approach might be to tap people's motivations, play on their emotions, or otherwise employ psychology to feed their ego in some way. In the field of social media, this is called a free service. You get to use a bunch of free technology that feels great, so long as you let it suck your soul, monetize your personal life, waste your time, and accelerate the demise of your civilization. In this approach, you don't tell someone to do something because it is necessary or correct. You lie to them in order to get what you want. Some people refer to this as success. The third option is called the cause. If someone is committed to the cause, even when they do not want to do the work, get nothing from it, and take no pleasure in it, even when they protest, they get it done. Only when someone does the work under this pressure, against their will, can the Lord be certain that their praise is not empty lip service. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 351 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I hinted last week, Richard, that Matthew in chapter 21 is drawing a contrast between those who think they are well and those who know that they're not well, those who are in need, whether they have an ailment such as blindness or a physical impairment, or their station in society identifies them publicly as being unworthy. You know, I think again about Paul's emphasis on the public portrayal of the shame of Jesus Christ. Well, if you're a tax collector or a prostitute, you are publicly shamed in the same way that Jesus was publicly shamed on the cross. And that shame or that ailment, that weakness has a value because it puts you in a position to at least have a chance 
at grasping what those living in Jerusalem don't understand, that they need God. They need his help. They need his teaching. They need his judgment. They don't see their blindness. I'm reminded of the passage in John, before we jump in this morning, Rich, that talks about the turning of the tables where the Lord comes so that those who think they see become blind and those who are blind can see. That's playing out here in Matthew. It's a different gospel, but it's the same teaching. So it's not a question of who is in need of God's instruction, because the need is universal. It's a question of who understands the need. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. What I love about this verse is the way it's laid out simply, father to son, get it done. That's the discussion. The father doesn't have to motivate the son. He just tells him what to do. It boils down to the question, who's getting it done? Human beings run into problems when they blame other people for their problems. I can't do a workday every week at church because it just takes too much time. I can't be there every Saturday. So you change it. Okay, we'll have bigger work projects on a quarterly basis. Oh, sorry, I can't make that workday. I've got something else going on. So then you say, okay, well, is that person not working because of the day? Or are they not working because they themselves have some kind of problem with doing this work? At least if they say, you know, Father, I don't do physical work. I can't do it. Forgive me, Father. Would you mind releasing me from this because I can't do it? You may say, I don't believe you. I don't think that's an actual weakness of yours. I think you need to get there and just do the work and forget everything else. Or you could say, yeah, I understand. It's a problem for you. Go, you're released. Don't do it. You have my blessing not to go help. But when people go and blame other people for their lack of action, that is a deep, deep problem. And this is how you can tell the difference between, you know, if you have an alcoholic who is saying, well, I drink because my wife is mean and I drink because I got a lousy job and I drink because my kids are too loud and I drink because my car isn't running. When are they going to stop drinking? When they stop having problems or when other people stop having birthdays? The only time that they're going to stop drinking, they say, my drinking is ruining my life and it's ruining the life of other people around me. I have a problem and I need to solve this problem and I need to work on this problem. And only when I work on this problem as an alcoholic is anything going to start getting better? Is anything going to change at all? So the blind in Matthew own their blindness. The chief priests are blind and they don't own their blindness. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The key in verse 29 is Matthew's teaching about lip service. There are lots of people who, when confronted with God's teaching, will say, yes, Lord, kirie, kirie. They give lip service to God. Lots of people get on television and talk about how much they love Jesus, but that public display of emotion has little connection to how they live their lives. We're all familiar with this hypocrisy because this hypocrisy is in all of us, which is what Matthew is putting in our face. But what's interesting is that he regretted it. Just like when you repent, 
you have a change of mind and reflecting the original Hebrew, shuv, you actually turn. Here, with the Greek word that's translated as regret, metamelithis, you are having a change in attitude, a change in priority, a change in what you care about. It's a kind of repenting. It's a kind of turning around so that ultimately your actions will reflect the commandment. And in the end, as we'll see in Matthew, God's not interested in praise and lip service. Our incense is a stench in his nostrils in Isaiah, as we've said. Our worship in Hosea is actually a problem for him because he wants mercy, not sacrifice. So telling Jesus how much you love him and how great he is and praised be his name is not what is asked of us. And that's especially poignant, Richard, because all of this is happening in the context of the Lord's condemnation, not only of Jerusalem, but specifically the temple cult. The command that's been given ever since the prophets has been that there's this work that needs to be done. There's a vineyard. I mean, it's not like Jesus came up with this image of a vineyard. Isaiah was talking about a vineyard, and this is a common metaphor of the work that needs to be done on behalf of the landowner who is God. The chief priests and the elders have a job in the vineyard. Jesus is doing the work of the vineyard. Well, who is he to come into this vineyard and do work? I mean, it's absurd because, of course, the real question is the work that was assigned to you, chief priests and elders, is that work getting done? I mean, as a chief priest and as an elder, the owner of the vineyard has a job for you to do. And he said, go into my vineyard and work. So we have someone here who decided that they didn't want to go, even though their father told him to, you know, he cared about what he cared about, and it wasn't the same as the father. But he finally aligned his will with the father and just went and did it. And he didn't align his will in his heart or in his head. He went out and he did the work. He went, he walked, he took the steps necessary to go out and to do the thing that the father was asking for in the first place. And you and I both know it's better when the kid cleans his room or takes out the trash with a good attitude. But the main thing is you just need to pick up the trash and go put it outside. That's the main thing. We'll talk about the attitude later. But until that, all I'm going to say is take out the trash now. And as soon as the kid aligns his will to take out the trash, the less argument, the better. It's less stress for us. But for the father of Jesus Christ, I don't know how much stressed he gets when people complain about having to do his will. The main thing is that this son, who said he wasn't going to do the work, decided to do the work. And that's the focus, doing the work of the vineyard. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. So you've got these two characters. It's straightforward. The first did not give lip service, but then had a change of priorities, a change of concern, a change of attitude, a change in what he cared about, as demonstrated in his action. And the second, who is quick to say, I'll do it. Yes, Lord. And here the translation is interesting. In the Greek, it's 
Ego Kyrie, which means I, Lord. And here in the English, it says, I will, sir. I like to point out the use of the title Kyrie, Lord, Kyrios, because it connects this passage to the passage which is critical of lip service, those who would say, Lord, Lord. You cannot say, Lord, Lord, and expect some advantage out of your praise, as if God is your corporate executive who wants to hear how great he is so you can advance your career. It doesn't work that way. You might be able to play politics and fool people in other arenas with other lords, but with this lord, he's not impressed when you tell everybody how much you love him. He wants to see what you're going to do on the basis of what he asked you to do, father to son, get it done. It's a peculiarity in certain languages. They don't have a word for yes, or they don't always use the word for yes, and you can just repeat something from the previous sentence. And so when he says, I, he's saying, I will go. That's what it's short for. And then he uses Kyria, which also I find interesting, Father, that he doesn't say, yes, Father. He says, yes, Lord. And I think that does make it more emphatic that Jesus is saying, this is a parable talking about you. <laughs> it's not talking about, don't get confused and start thinking this is a fairy tale about a vineyard. This is talking about you, and the correct answer to the Lord is, I, I will go in the same way that Isaiah was very excited to be the one, you know, send me, send me. This is what the second son was showing, or at least saying, and, you know, Father, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this problem of lip service, you know, the one we were talking about before with, you know, church work days, this lip service is very easy to fall into, and the Bible shows it time and time and time again all the way back to Cain and Abel. I, you know, it's lip service. Oh, you know, I, I offered this thing, but then I got angry. And I was that really an offering or was that a lip service so you could manipulate God? Hosea talks about the lip service that people give. And here we have a very direct demonstration of this, which Jesus is applying to the chief priests and the elders. So the implication here is that the chief priests and the elders are talking a good talk, but they're not actually going to the vineyard to do that work. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Just hear the Greek for a moment. Tis ekton dio epiisento thelima tu patros. In the parable, the will of his father, but anyone familiar with any part of the New Testament, when you hear will of the father, thelima, you know within the context of the school of the New Testament, we're talking about the text of the Bible, primarily the text of the Old Testament. That's the will of the father. It just drives that point home more forcefully that those in Jerusalem who are doing just fine without the Messiah, 
don't want the king to come back to the city because it's going to mess up their whole situation. As far as they're concerned, the temple is working the way it should. And, well, we managed to stay in the land because we can do it or whatever they're thinking. Those who think they're fine. Not only is he telling them, you're not doing the will of my father, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes are and will enter into the Father's kingdom before you. And the fact that he's talking about entering into a kingdom also perturbs and disturbs the whole notion that Jerusalem and its temple are God's city and temple. Father Paul made a brilliant point. I think it was on one of the Tuesday programs, Richard, or perhaps just in passing in a conversation where he said that Scripture is actually very crafty in the way that it refers to Bethlehem as the city of David. It's a backhanded way of saying it's not God's city. Likewise, Jerusalem is not God's city. It might be where David wants to be enthroned, but that's not where Jesus is going to be enthroned. We're now in Jerusalem, knocking it out and reorienting ourselves towards the city whose name is the Lord is there in the prophets. Right. This is the question that Jesus is addressing. Remember, they saw Jesus acting, and they said, by what authority does he do these actions? So their question was, did the father tell him to go work in the vineyard, or is he just working in the vineyard without anybody telling him? And Jesus makes a point, are you doing the work? Or are you not doing the work? <laughs> like, that's the real question. He is undermining what they did before because before they wanted to claim stupid so that they didn't look bad in front of the people because they wanted to keep their position of authority. They wanted to be a son. They didn't want to act like a son. They wanted to talk like sons, but they didn't want to do the task assigned by their father. So when the publicans and the harlots, who are the ones who said, you know, I'm going to do my own thing against the will of God, but then finally led this procession into Jerusalem, who followed Jesus in order to follow the teaching that Jesus was bringing, that were coming to listen at his feet so they could go and act differently, so they could repent, so that they might become citizens of this kingdom of heaven, they were willing to do the work, even though they had rejected the true teaching before. They knew they were blind and realized, you know, if this is all it takes to see, I'll do it. And they did it. The chief priests and the elders never saw. They talked a good talk, but they never did the action. They never took the work upon them to do. The publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you because they're doing the work. They're the ones who are working in the vineyard. They're the ones who earned their wage because they did the work that needed to be done. You said you were going to work, but you didn't do anything. You know, it's important here to point out because very often you get in modern Christianity this cult of the weak where somehow you imagine that what God is impressed with is the fact that they're on the outside, is the fact that they're sick or weak, or the fact that they're a tax collector or a prostitute. That would be a gross misreading. Even if you eliminate the stations that are, by human standards, morally questionable, 
the prostitute, the tax collector, and the thief. If you just deal with those who are disadvantaged, you're not allowed to put them on a pedestal. If you put the weak and the disadvantaged on a pedestal, and then you think that the goal of Scripture is to make you weak like them, then you will inhabit that position in your mind and then lord your victim mentality over everyone else and abuse them. It has to be said because this cult of weakness is not scriptural at all. I mean, you're already putting something on a pedestal that belongs to only one power in Scripture, which is the Father of Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind, that their value is that they're not on a pedestal, and they are in a position where they're dependent on God, so therefore they do what he says. That's the key, is that they do what he says. For John came to you in the way of righteousness— and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. This saying in the Gospel of John about causing those who see to become blind, reflecting the curse in Isaiah, which also is reflected here in the curse of the fig tree, and at the same time helping those who are blind to see. It's a different gospel, but the concept for me here is Jermaine Richard, that they're able to see. They're not among the blind and the lame, and having seen with their own eyes, because what they see is a projection of their darkness, they don't feel remorse. They don't have that change of attitude, that change of priority, that change of what they care about. There's no repentance in them because the lamp of their eye is full of darkness in Matthew, and so therefore seeing is of no value. They may as well be blind. I love this image because you think of him coming on the way of righteousness, right? It's ovos. It's it's a path. It's a road. And so if you imagine everyone's sitting around— and you see this guy walking by, and he says, I'm going to the kingdom. The kingdom's this way. The people who want to go to the kingdom, nobody knows where the kingdom is. That's why, you know, we talk about him being the forerunner. You know, he's the podromos who's on the way before us. And so you can either say, I don't know if he knows how to get to the kingdom. I don't know if it's a smart idea to follow him. Or he might say, well, I don't have any better idea of how to get there. This happened to me when I was traveling to Ukraine. In the middle of the night, we were taken out of our train at 3 o'clock in the morning in Belarus, and then we had to go and buy visas. We came back to where the train was. There was no train. And two of the people I was chatting with went to the left, and two of the people I was chatting with went to the right. All I knew is I needed to find my train. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and there was no one to ask. So do I go off with these people into the dark, or do I go off with this people into the dark? And I chose my people, and I made it to the train. Why? Because I trusted them, because I didn't know the way to the train, and they seemed to know what they were doing. Now, I could have said, who are these people that they know how to get to the train? And I certainly would not have found the train. I would be standing on the, <laughs> I'd be standing by the tracks to this day because I never would have found my train. They see John the Baptist go through. So the publicans and the harlots believed him. They're like, you know, this path that I'm on, 
It's a terrible path. I don't like this path, the publican path, the harlot path. I don't like it. John, I trust you. I think you're on a better path. I'm going to follow you. But you, interestingly, you, chief priests and elders, you didn't care about anything else. You didn't change what you cared about. You liked your path. So therefore, you couldn't believe him. You never really cared about the path he was on anyway. What you cared about was that you were doing what you wanted to do. That's what you cared about, doing what you wanted to do. If you don't take the path that John was on, you're not going to make it to the kingdom because that's the path. So if you want to take your path, fine, keep staying on your path, but don't ask me by what authority and don't presume that you're doing the work of the Father because you're not even headed to the kingdom. It's worth mentioning once again, Richard, and this reflects honestly the prologue to the Gospel of Mark, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, that way, and although the Keosinis is in the wilderness, the reason you don't want to go on that path is because it does not lead to Jerusalem. It leads to the kingdom, which means you have to abandon Jerusalem. You have to abandon the temple. We're still in chapter 21, Rich. For us, it feels like a different episode and a different pericope, but if you're hearing it as a story, you're still feeling a little bit squeamish that Jesus cursed the fig tree. It's always got to be there in the back of your mind if you're an honest listener to the story. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.